Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, today I am super thrilled, super excited about our guest, Annie Philpot. She is a public health professional, pleasure propagandist, and guerrilla girl of HIV prevention. You may have heard of her. She founded the Pleasure Project in 2004, in frustration of endless AIDS meetings where no one talked about people's motivations for having sex or even pretended uh, sexually transmitted infections were airborne. <laughs> Annie has been a speaker across the world at international conferences, promoting pleasure and sex education, and as the ultimate indicator of female empowerment. I have actually been following your work for so long. I can't even, I don't even remember, but this is the first time I'm meeting you. So lovely to meet you. Thank you. No, thanks for following us. I'm really excited to be invited onto your podcast as well. I think I remember, did you have an exhibit in Melbourne at the AIDS conference, the International AIDS conference? I was there and pushing pleasure as per usual, but at the at the Bangkok AIDS conference was the first time we had a exhibition and that was the launch of the pleasure project. And we did an exhibition or I did basically in true Gorilla Girl style called the Great Wall of Vagina. And it was, awesome. is that the one you mean? Is that the one you came to? I wasn't there. I just remember being, I've been at all the AIDS conferences since, only since 2000, I think 2008 in, in Mexico City was the so first we were, one. Yeah, I, I wasn't there, but my, my fellow activists were in Mexico, but the, the Bangkok one was where we launched the Pleasure Project. And that was basically where I'd been to the AIDS conference before, and I'd been working in condom promotion, female condom promotion. And then my head kind of exploded because I thought if a Martian landed at this AIDS conference, they would think that we're talking about an airborne disease. Like nobody <laughs> is talking about sex. This is bizarre. And I went to a session where a very sweet guy who's a you know clinical trials researcher, very, very British, and he had a cravat. And he was presenting about vaginal microbicides. And I thought, I'll go along to this session and I'll really understand because I was like, you know, it was, it was like latest trials and it was about you know, vaginal absorption and clades. And he was talking about the insertive probe and the receptive cavity. And I thought, right, he's on the lab stuff now. He's doing the lab, you know, and then, and then I realized he's talking about penis and vagina. I was like, no, this is too much now. Then I was like, now we've got to stop this. 
We've got to use the words, people, use the words. And then I launched the Pleasure Project in um, at the Bangkok AIDS conference. Yeah. And so we had oh. an art exhibition called The Great Wall of Vagina, where I'd collected vulva drawings because I'd been doing female condom workshops. And so what I used to do at the beginning as an icebreaker was to say to people, OK, you know, this is your two day workshop about female condoms or in, you know, the, the new insertive condoms. And um, I want you to take a piece of paper and a pen and I want you to like, you know, write down or draw. I want you to draw a vagina. Now, it can be your vagina. It can be like one you know well and you love or it can be your vision of one. And people would go <laughs> and freak out. And I thought if you're going to promote the in internal condom mm -hmm. you got to start using the words and feel comfortable and so and the pictures were so amazing I collected them and they were like I was running these workshops in all all over the world and um, collected them and then did an exhibition and it was this um friend of mine who runs this great restaurant called Eat Me <laughs> and he said okay have your exhibition here at Eat Me and I was like yep that sounds good. That is awesome. Okay, I want to rewind. That's amazing. And I don't want to keep going, but I want to rewind before we keep going and say, so I gave you, you know, a three sentence introduction. If you're in an elevator with somebody, how do you introduce yourself? If they say, hey, Annie, what are you all about? So I say, well, the, the pleasure project is about putting the sexy into safer sex because sex education is rarely sexy and erotica is rarely safe and we need to bridge between those two worlds we need to make we you know pleasure is arguably the primary motivator for having sex around the world and yet mm -hmm. it's so stigmatized to discuss it and we know that pleasure inclusive sexual health is more effective absolutely i i'm so i'm so excited to have you on today okay the <laughs> next question i have before we go more into all of the work you're doing now is I'm going to show up to your place. And you just said you're in Dorset in UK. I'm going to show up right now in my time machine. It has space for physical distancing. And I'm going to show up and say, take me back to the time and place. Was it the AIDS conference? Was it before that when you thought, oh, we need to be talking about sexual pleasure and like getting getting past this kind of blocks we have about this was it would you say it's at Bangkok was it further where would we go on the time machine gosh I would say it was further you know I mean so I suppose there's there's two furthers back there's what first of oh, all the time machine just so you know the time machine can go multiple stopovers oh, and across good. time and space good. it's a very flexible time machine I've been refining good. it Okay, okay. So first of all, welcome to Dorset. It's gorgeous to have you here. I'd probably take you down with a cup of tea to my veggie patch. We could have a nice, nice. chat because the view from there is amazing. What, what vegetables are in there? Oh, I've, oh, this year I feel bad. I haven't planted as much as last year, but I've got some loads of onions. My raspberries are just coming up oh, and my I cucumbers. In the, I've got a greenhouse for the first time in my whole life. So wow. my tomatoes are doing really well so yeah I've got and does that keep the animals out because we have so many rabbits right now <laughs> I got badgers know. in my garden I swear I'm gonna turn into Mr McGregor with like <laughs> a a gun sitting there through the night because they chew the end of the carrots and just spit them out and off they go so oh my goodness anyway sorry all the animal lovers that's just me getting frustrated <laughs> with the ones that are... I don't mind if they eat the whole carrot just eating the end and then going you know so <sighs> 
Yeah. So we're okay. So I'm in your veggie patch and the, you're looking at this beautiful time machine and you're going to program it. Where, where would we go? So there's, there's the first place I would go back to was when, well, very first of all, I would go back to, I went to an all girls school. I'd go back to the only sex education I got at that all girls school, which is in a biology class with a great biology teacher, Mr. Graham. But he stood up and he said, okay, we're doing it. And we're all like, wow, we're doing sex education. <laughs> wow, exciting. And he stood up and he said, okay, now I'm going to tell all of you girls, surefire way to um, prevent pregnancy because um, that's, you know, how sex education usually is, yeah. right? If you have a womb, to prevent pregnancy is to take an aspirin. And we all went, aspirin! Oh! And put that aspirin between your knees and hold it there. And then that was that. And then they went on wow. to, you know, what happens once you get pregnant? Let's And then we spent about three months. We watched the labor film, people passed out. And they spent about three months just doing the nine months of pregnancy, right? And there was nothing, nothing on what you might enjoy in your relationships, what pleasure might mean to you what's your motivation so I suppose the seed was sown there where was this um, school that was um not far north of London actually okay. so but then the seed was sown for me because then I went on to be a sex educator in schools but the seed was sown for me when I had a different experience when the menstruation woman came in thank <laughs> god for the menstruation woman because she came in and she first of all started her whole session by saying okay everybody who gets who has their period put your hand up and then she looked at the back row of all the teachers and went, don't you lot get your period yet? Wow. Like and this. And she just broke down the stigma. She opened up the conversation. I remember feeling relaxed for the first time. She gave us products. It was just, I thought, wow, that's, you know, and I, at that time I remember clocking, that's an inspiring woman with, who came and did an hour session and broke down. And it's so, I mean, what I loved about being and what I do love about being a sex educator is people have, there's so much stigma. There's so much nervousness about using any of the words that you can easily reassure people like in you've got half an hour with them an hour with them you can allay so many fears mm -hmm. it's so satisfying right and so then I went on to do exactly that like go and be the menstruation woman in schools and I suppose the pleasure seed was sown because I was doing interestingly not so far from here I was doing a, a job which was being the kind of young person representative in a community sexual health project a young women's sexual health project and they chose me as a representative of the youth <laughs> and I was like 22 or something and they and then I did a research project into why young women from a particular area so a more um, lower socioeconomic background area why they weren't going to services and then we were working on adjusting the services and it was a brilliant job and I asked young people as part of that project when do you have safer sex like what encourages you to have safer sex so rather than asking them when do you not have safer sex because they were having a lot mm -hmm. of safer sex and sometimes they weren't and people would always talk about the not like and I think we've we're too much glass half empty the whole time totally. in public health and it's and actually they talked about experiences of you know having easier access to condoms or a private space or not feeling stressed and how they were able to practice safer sex and then we had conversations about how that was more reassuring less stressful more pleasurable and so I guess I that flipped my mind into actually asking about the when you do's mm -hmm. rather than the when you don't and then that must have been the beginning that was my journey that led to that point at the Barcelona AIDS conference when basically I thought, no, we've, we're too much in the public health world focusing on death, danger and disease. Yes. And, <laughs> uh, and ju we just don't, you know, so a big, big mantra for me is how do we know what 
to say no to if we're not taught what to say yes to. Oh, interesting. And, you know, and it's it's quite it's more gendered, isn't it? Where or it's more there's more stigma for particular groups, you know, for queer people, for female identifying people, where your pleasure is not privileged in the same way as as straight men. And so there is it's you know it's also bad for them, but it's kind of exacerbated. And so there's never that open space to talk about what you might want from a relationship what would make that relationship work for you like what you might choose in your life and so I think that was that's the kind of time machine journey really until the beginning of the pleasure project but I mean one last bit sorry there's another time machine moment it's great you're asking me this question it's making me think about it (laughs) was when I was living in Sri Lanka and I was again running a workshop with sex workers in Sri Lanka about the female condom which is a new product for them and then I said well you know take one home overnight and try it and come back and and we talked about could you you know eroticize its use could you talk about it in as a sort of sex toy and then um, they used it with their clients and their partners and they came back the next day with lots of small notes handwritten notes which which the clients and partners had written on it you know how much they loved it and they told me how they had eroticized its use by letting the male partners insert it they'd said that you know it only makes noise when they're good you know it was larger than the male condom because they were large it made not you know and it was like they and the outer ring rubbed on the clit and they just you know were so creative and I think that that was the sort of that sealed the deal for me and it also sealed the deal for me in um, wanting to amplify more the expertise and the lived experience of those who negotiate safer sex Mm -hmm. a lot more routinely and regularly because there's a wealth of amazing expertise and lived experience but at AIDS conferences that sadly is underprivileged right and what's privileged is the the you know the the you know the academics or but there's you know these these women negotiated safer sex so regularly they were they're the, the professors you know they were the uber experts and so that's also something that I see as really important, right? The communities and and those of us who have that expertise have learned how to be creative. Absolutely. You're making me think of on 2003 to 2004, I lived in Ghana for a year and I was just finished my master's and they were like, okay, you're going to be working with the young people around HIV through this co-op. And so I'd be <laughs> meeting like, you know, like a lot of times, there's not an indoor auditorium. So you're meeting like outside, you know, so hundreds of people and like, okay, just talk about HIV, you know? And if I ever had any reservation about talking about safer sex, I had to get over it really fast because it was like hundreds of people staring at me. And I could be really, I think because I'm coming from outside, just a little bit more open about talking about sex. And so I really, even now if at parties and stuff like that, I'll be like, oh, you know, like talking to people about like prep or condoms. People will be surprised. I feel like there's still this sort of hesitancy. And I'm really, the other thing I wanted to note was that there was a lot of female condoms at the agency I was working at and everybody made them into bracelets, like the the like jelly bracelets. Nobody was using them. And I remember there was these baskets of condoms all over the agency and they were like they had no label on them it was just like a date stamped on them they were like kind of like matte silver just like I think delivered from the U.S. with like a date stamped on them and I had like written this small like 
grant for like some colleagues in Ghana to go to Uganda, where they were doing a really great job at that time in, in prevention. And they came back with these bags of condoms that were like really beautiful. Like the packaging was cool. There was different colors. Imagine there was like black condoms, like just not white shipped condoms, you know, to Sub-Saharan Africa. There was flavors. There's all these different things. Those condoms went within like one day and for the rest of the year, people kept coming up to me and saying, do you have any more of those Ugandan condos? And then we were like, no, we have these silver ones. And they're like, oh, we'd rather go and spend like a dollar a condom, which is a, a lot of money in, in a lot of places, mm. even in you know North America, because they like to have the, the choice. They like the, to look cooler, to match their to have a, a color choice, you know, things like that. So for me, I, I remember, I think that that's probably when I started thinking about our need to, to really make safe sex fun and sexy and give people lots of options. And also for us as sex educators to really get over any inhibitions we have about, about talking about sex. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, of course, we all want a bit of variety, don't we? We want like ribbed condoms or, I mean, and lube is the unsung hero of mm -hmm. sexual health, right? Or heroin. And, um, you know, so, but yeah, you know, sort of, I don't know, I get frustrated that people say, oh, condoms don't work like on mass, like they don't break it down into how you actually have to make a condom program work well, you know, and, and like you said, a bit of variety, maybe a, a nice package that somebody wants to put in their pocket, you know, and it doesn't have to cost that much, right? So yeah, and, and different colors that actually suit people's penises, right? So, you know, and yeah, I completely agree with you in terms of trying to to vary it up a bit as well. I want to go back to what you said earlier, because, you know, one of the things we look at on the podcast is who cares? Like, why should we care about like stigma around sex or a stigma around sexual pleasure? And you mentioned earlier that um, it, it helps us to practice safer sex if we think about, I don't know, you said something really <laughs> profound earlier. I'm not going to, I can't say it back to you, but you said it, basically it matters around a, a kind of like destigmatizing sexual pleasure because it'll make, you know, probably people realize sexual health outcomes better. That was a really non-beautiful way of saying what you said. <laughs> so we, we know there's, there's emerging, but you know, it's a fairly small research base, but there's emerging and increasing evidence that pleasure inclusive sexual health leads to better sexual and reproductive health outcomes so you know in, including um, and and that varies right some interventions are kind of the you know will have a whole sort of not sex positive intervention so maybe disease prevention but will then have an element which is eroticizing condom use or some lube and that has an impact but other interventions at the end of this scale of pleasure inclusive sexual health mm -hmm. tell us more about what is pleasure inclusive sexual health so we've defined pleasure inclusive <laughs> sexual health and you'll find it on our website but but basically it goes one step further than sex positive sexual health which is in itself good because sex positive sexual health you know builds on sexual rights it assumes that sex can be good for you but there can be consequences that you need to watch out for right and that's great because so much of the sex education we get just tells you all the fear-based messages and this is gonna mm -hmm. you know if you don't use a condom you're gonna die or you know you're gonna have a terrible time or you're gonna be a bad woman but like actually pleasure inclusive sexual health is about moving beyond that and 
talking about the enhancement of your well-being, having the relationships you want, you know, enhancement of your, of your, you know, the, the possibility of having pleasurable relationships and feeling proud in your sexual identity can enhance your life as a whole, right? And so, you know, taking away that stigma and taboo that is around sexuality and, and sex. And so that's what pleasure inclusive sexual health is. And, and, you know, some of the interventions I've seen that are fantastic, the people who run them start from the assumption that um, sort of sexual pleasure is a universal human experience mm. and it can be a massive enhancement to your life, but it can, you know, but having, but there are consequences to sex and it, you know, all kinds of consequences in terms of mental or physical, but, but aiming for the optimum sexual experience for you. Right. So going way, you know, right. Not even thinking from a disease frame, right. Which is what the public health world does and going um, into what kind of relationships and sex you want and you know honoring sexual rights and so what we've seen is that interventions that are pleasure inclusive people respond to them better you know if you go to a sex education session or a training and somebody recognizes that that's your motivation or part of your motivation you then believe them more because it's not like the bit that's missed out right and they, they you know that's all more authentic then and it's more responsive and so then people either practice more safer sex because you then talk about how to include that within pleasurable interactions how to eroticize safer sex but also the research shows that if you have more sexual self-esteem you're more likely to use contraception or practice safer sex because you can say what you want because you've been given that frame of reference. Whereas what we do see from sex education that only talks about stopping, that there's more unsafe sex, there's more unintended pregnancies because that doesn't recognise the entirety of the human experience or what people want from their relationships. I love that you, I, I just love your work so much. And I love that when I was reading and, you know, referencing your uh, definition of sexual pleasure, it also included sexual consent. So I'm working on this small project with an arts-based youth organization in Toronto and Canada where I am. And they're, what we're doing is we're trying to adapt their sexual consent workshops they've been doing in schools, which are really arts-based and fun and like awesome for young people living in homeless shelters. And so we did a focus, two focus groups last week. And what you said actually is exactly what some of the young people brought up, which is that a lack of confidence actually gets in the way of negotiating sexual consent. And so I think, you know, pulling back from the disease focus to more of a relational focus, you know, we're in relationship with the world, we're in relationship with other people and, and centering that, what do we need to be a, in a good relationship with ourselves and with other people, you know, and then thinking of, you know, the secondary outcome being, you know, sexual health, but not just focusing so much on the sexual health that the person and their relationships are sort of secondary, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, and I said about the sex education that I had, you know, it was like a, an almost exclusive focus on pregnancy, right? And then, of course, I mean, not of course, but a number of, you know, girls at the school did get pregnant, but that was maybe because they hadn't been given the opportunity to talk about what they wanted in relationships or, or it was um, 
just then a surprise when they started having a relationship, right? And what they might ask for or what they might consent to, right? So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always say pleasure-inclusive sexual health builds on sexual rights, you know? Sexual rights are the building blocks of pleasure-inclusive sexual health mm -hmm. because it's, you know, pleasure is is about the the physical pleasure but it's about the mental pleasure it's about the well-being it's about all of those elements of sexual rights and and recognition of the full diversity of human experiences and sexual identities that are absolutely critical as well so yeah absolutely what are some of the projects that the pleasure project is doing or involved in around sexual pleasure that you're excited about right now oh so many so you know <laughs> tell it's, us it's great because... i want the listeners to kind of get a sense of what does this look like in practice so i mean it's great i'm i'm talking i keep calling it a building pleasure wave so after many years of kind of being the 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 person and it's myself and arushi who are the co-directors on the pleasure project so me and arushi would go to conferences or and we'd be like doing our poster campaigns and we'd be like the sole voice going yeah pleasure also pleasure like you know and then now it, there seems to be quite a big sea change and it's so exciting so one really big thing that's happened is the world association of sexual health who are the original organization that put out the sexual rights declaration put out a sexual pleasure declaration at their Mexico Congress nearly two years ago mm -hmm. that will hopefully be confirmed at their Congress their Cape Town it's going to be virtually it was going to be in Cape Town Cape Town Congress and that lays out why pleasure is important in terms of sexuality and sexual health and there's a lot of um the organization spans sexologists and sexual health experts. And I think that that bringing together of that expertise of sexologists who have been more focused on what people want from their relationships and pleasure. And it's been great to be part of that journey with them. So you did a you did a talk there, right? Yeah, I did. And yeah, in Mexico. I went, I was there and you showed like, I think you were talking about porn and safer sex or something. Yeah, also, yeah. So I think, you know, the I think, you know, the public health world and the sex education world are many people have got their head in the sand. I mean, if you look at access to internet all over the world, I mean, you see the stats every day growing, you know, anybody can just type in a word into Google and they have access to hardcore porn and like a lot of it being, you know, not kind of sexually explicit media that we would want a lot of people to see or I would want them to see. I mean, it's like, you know, sexist, racist, violent, you know, it's a very... Um, you know, a few providers have cornered the market in free access. And I think we need to recognize that that is becoming, to some extent, people's sex education. But there are also alternative types of sexually explicit media that people should have access to and or framing that, you know, that, that could help them understand what that media is right that it's not real life that it's coming from a particular place and that that you know and, and i'm not saying the porn industry is all like that it's very there's a whole range of different types of content and there's mm -hmm. feminist content and there's queer content and there's you know content that is much more high quality we know it's consensual we know the performers are you know are part of the production process for example and there's actually some Porn performers who are now producing sex education but I think that the because they're the experts in how to show people what to do right so but I think that there's mm -hmm. um there's a need to really think about 
you know, the, the, the artificial boundaries we've created between these worlds and the kind of sort of platform that public health puts itself on sometimes. And actually we've been, we're working on a randomized control trial wow. for the university here in the UK that will look at what behavior change could be affected by different types of content that people will get on their phones after they've had an STI test. So you can pick up these STI tests, free test me, it's called in clubs and so on, you get your result on your phone. And then if you have a positive result, you will get either sort of standard condom education or something that's a bit more funky condom education or some films that we made that are explicit, but that are couples talking about when they use condoms, when it works for them, and then showing them using condoms. So, you know, going that one step further and um, that will help us understand how to make, how to, you know, sort of blur those artificial lines, but create content that is, is, you know, helping frame that for people in a way that rather dangerously they otherwise would have access to this kind of huge tsunami of content, which is available, you know, and it is available to all ages. And it frankly scares me really in terms of how that's affecting people's framing of their own sexuality and sex lives so it almost feels like because we've stigmatized sex then we naturally that it includes sexual pleasure and so then when people want to learn more about sex and they end up going to these far reaches of free stuff that isn't as you said that could be not realistic not not helpful I know this is a, a tough question, but why do you think we stigmatize sex in 2021? Why? Yeah, God, I've thought about it such a lot. I mean, one, the first thing we have to recognize is that there's there's more stigma to certain types of sex, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and there's Gail Rubin's, you know, hierarchy of sexualities, right? And pleasure. And so, you know, we, you know, globally, we stigmatize sex less if you're heterosexual married right and then mm -hmm. and then you can look down the, the I think I think she did it in circles but basically if your sexual identity is more stigmatized or taboo you're less it's also is the mm -hmm. same for your pleasure right but you know and arguably we see also sexism playing out quite a lot right so maybe gay men their their access to pleasure is kind of more talked about than lesbians so you know you can see those so kind of patriarch yeah all those social constructs right so um and then race racism plays a part in that as well you know being non-binary like all you know you can just see all of those different ladders of privilege pa and patriarchy mm. also play out in terms of pleasure and sex but overall i think we stigmatize sex and sexual relationships through a kind of fear it's like a, a control and a fear and an assumption that sex drive as it's called is almost uncontrollable mm -hmm. like if you allow somebody to access their sex drive they'll become a maniac of some sort you know and so and there's quite a lot of rather than recognizing people are in control of their own behavior right it's not a force within us that makes us become something where we can't control our behavior and actually that narrative is really dangerous so mm -hmm. that narrative is sometimes used as a justification for rape for example but we know rape is about yeah. power yeah it's not about some you know it, it, your sexuality is not an uncontrollable force that takes you over you know and you can't mm -hmm. it, you are still able to control 
the actions that you take and actually being able to talk about that and choose that rather than repress that is what we need to what we need to do but I think it's that and we can see that playing out in history in different ways but we have to also remember that it's not um it hasn't always been that way right Mm -hmm. and I just listen to this really interesting talk about sex through history and actually there's been times in history when we've been less scared of sex where we've had more open conversations and in fact looking at what they were saying in this talk is that you know I was asking the question has pleasure been less absent in sex education in the past and this historian Fern Britton she's called was saying yes pleasure used to be more centered in sex Mm. education textbooks partly because it was assumed that a woman had to have an orgasm to become pregnant so it was therefore privileged and seen as important for that reason right but actually I mean which is not great but it's actually at least it was more centered right and women's pleasure was more centered whereas women's pleasure and people who are female identified tend to have a lot more shame and stigma around their pleasure you know and they're actively you know actually being asking for or saying in your sex life you want pleasurable safer sex you know it's really scary and risky and in lots of contexts you know you either get called a name or you're seen as loose or um you might be at risk of death right you know and so and that's just articulating that you might want sex and safer sex right so i think you know there is definitely a big gender lens around control and then you also just have to think about female genital mutilation and what that kind of represents in terms of fear of pleasure as well so um yeah it kind of plays out in lots of different ways I think it's really interesting you mentioned that about history I did my PhD research in India and you know it had a lot of talk like conversations with people I saw a lot of temples that had a lot of images of lots of different people having sex um you know we had uh one of the guests, Nitika, Dr. Nitika Pai, was was also talking about this and the influence of, you know, colonization and Christianity. So, you know, she's like, this is the, you know, the land of where, you know, you know, there was the Kama Sutra and there was all these other expressions of sexuality that were sort of, you know, maybe with Christianity were constructed as being you know, not Christian or something like that. So I do, I do think it's important, yeah, to look at how it, it hasn't always been like this. And I, uh, I just finished actually writing a book. I think congratulations. Be, wow. Thanks. I think it's going to be my first and last only <laughs> sole authored book. When I started writing about epistemologies of ignorance, and Nancy Tuana has this wonderful article, probably seen it about women's sexual organs and the and how it was actually removed from medical textbooks like proper anatomy because of religion in like I don't really remember I don't want to say it wrong what century like I don't know they actually took information that we had about women's sexual organs sexual pleasure out of medical texts because of religious influences. And it wasn't until like community activists and women's activists kind of created a different image of the woman's like anatomy and, and pleasure that it was brought back. It's really showing you how like it's such a, a political control over body, yeah. over bodies, over pleasure. There's like a real political element of what you're mentioning maybe around, you know, reproducing patriarchy. Yeah, absolutely. And- it's 
Yeah, completely. And so, I mean, I went to the, as far as I know, the world's first clitoris summit a few weeks ago. Oh, and how did I know about that? I didn't know about it. Now we're friends. Just we're friends now, right? We're going to... Yeah, gonna... yeah I just, why did I see it? Somebody sent it to me and it was like just 24 hours before. But the, the and I'm, oh, Professor O'Connell, I think her name is. She's a professor in Melbourne. And she was the first medical professional to do an MRI scan of the clitoris and then discover the full extent of it. And she does a great talk and has written about the classic medical textbook, Gray's Anatomy, which basically, yeah, showed the clitoris as a little bud, right? But, you know, so she's a urologist. That's how she was doing it. And then and then how, you know, showing the clitoris as it is, right? And, you know, much bigger and deeper inside the body and all the possibilities of sensation inside the body. And she, yeah, talks about the control of that information. And it's it was like in 1998 or something, you know, like it's... And then all of the oper- operations that were being done on women and on their bladders and just damaging their clitoris, right? And so... You know, because we, you know, maybe the image of FGM, right, is, you know, in people's minds is in certain countries, possibly in Africa. But actually, there's a lot of other medical malpractice that's happened in other parts of the world and, you know, still be happening because the true extent of the clitoris and anatomy hasn't been recognized. Right. So that's also pleasure to be. There's so many examples of where women's acts or women with wombs and uteruses and clitorises right to pleasure has been so denied and stigmatized right and you know also if you look up the history around trying to do trials around a female viagra like you know the male viagra is like a billion pound business right and they haven't been able to get the fda approval because the all of the scientific research is around contraception rather than actually pleasure right and then in contraceptive research and jenny higgins writes about this it won't be a question won't be, you know, taking this new pill, does that affect your pleasure as a woman? Whereas many women will report that, right? So it's just de privilege. Whereas that would be really privileged if it was talking to somebody with a penis and saying, This is really key, right? So, you know, it's just is there's example and example over and over again, right? So absolutely. And I think absolutely what you're saying about colonial history, you know, and, and Arushi and I talk about this quite a lot. You know, she's Indian and um, was based in India and yeah and I lived in Delhi for many years and I would go to the to Kajarao and some of the other temples mm. and um, yeah amazing and stunningly explicit and like you know even I who sort of pride myself on being a sex educator would go wow you know look at that temple and so you know what happened obviously is like Christian overlaying through colonialism to make you know to stigmatize sex through the the British colonial rule and 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 also to enact 377 the ruling against gay sex and and queer sexualities mm. and that's you know that's a, a hell of a and, that, and it wasn't like that before right and so i guess quite often the one question i get asked more often in this job is um or in this role is and it tends to be from people from the north of the globe and it tends to be feminists who will say, but, you know, are you overburdening women in other parts of the world with this um, need to also have pleasure on top of everything else that they have to manage, you know, like and, you know, everything else about their livelihoods? And my answer back is, well, is that a burden? And have you asked them? And it doesn't cost anything to have a wank, right? Are you also denying that they might be able to access their own pleasure, right? Through some sort of stereotype of what their life is 
like. And it's one of the projects you asked about projects that we're doing at the moment. And one of them that I'm super excited about is we've set up a pleasure fellows scheme. And that's partly because we wanted to amplify more voices mm -hmm. and have more guerrilla people like, you know, going to the conferences, talking about pleasure and who would have also all their ideas and all their creativity to kind of, you know, lead the advocacy charge. And we got so many applications. We've only got space for 12 people. And we got like 100, well, we got, wow. you know, I won't say how many applications, but basically we could only choose 6%. It was, I broke my heart. I realized that I will wow. never be able to do a job where I have to like select a small group, like whatever university admissions or course. I just, can't, it was so painful, but because it was, that was amazing. The people that came forth and we had 56% um, from Africa another 30% from South Asia, um, another 10% from like Latin America, very few from Europe and North America. I thought that was amazing. And that sort of, again, illustrates to me that there's some gatekeeping going on here in terms of the sort of international mm -hmm. development narratives or the donor agencies or the, uh, the international NGOs that might be, you know, headquarters in the north of the world. And so I really, absolutely, you know, our work is part of that decolonizing sex education and there's some great groups out there like decolonizing contraception really it's about flipping that narrative and thinking what do we want to aim for in these programs you know we're aiming for enhancement of well-being and joy and pleasure and you know more people being able to access the relationships they want and also looking at the consequences which might be disease but rather than centering this prevention of disease as the prime goal right so that, so you kind of answered the last question I was going to ask you, which is what you want the listener to do, like how they can be part of the solution. So I think you, you, you sort of said there's a bunch of agency, you know, check out the pleasure project, check out these decolonizing contraception and, you know, read more, more of your things. What else? I always give this example. I'm waiting for a listener to tell me where else they listen to the podcast other than walking their dog, because I listen to podcasts walking my dog. So if a listener is walking their dog, what? how can they be part of the solution, the pleasure revolution, or whatever it is that you want people to be part of? You know what they can do whilst they're walking their dog or whilst they're taking a walk? They can think, like, at the end of the podcast, what do they really want from their sex lives? Mm. Like, if they had a piece of paper in front of them, what they could do a drawing. They could say, what do they... It doesn't have to be what they need. It has to be what they want, right? And just sort of think on that for a moment because we don't often do that, right? Mm -hmm. And what do they... If it makes it easier, they can think of the next year or the next encounter and just allow themselves that thought, that kind of exciting, joyful thought. It doesn't have to be with another person. It can be on their own. It can be, you know, what would make them feel good, right? And so that could be thinking about playing with themselves that night in a particular way, right? And so I think do that first, because there's a bit of a journey we all have to do to get beyond the stigma that's been kind of surrounding us in our lives and some sort of self-recognition of that. And they don't have to tell anybody or show the paper or even tell the partner or the person that might have appeared on the paper um, because I think that just liberates us a bit mm -hmm. and then I think you know if they want to take that you know I mean and our sort of mantra is also a billion more safer sexy safe sex acts in the world right and so some new stats around that rather than the fact that we know there's a billion STIs in the world let's think about how many pleasurable safe acts there could be in the world right so and then I think maybe you know, if they're working in this field or if they're having a sexual health workshop or running one, think about 
talking about pleasure think about mm. making it a bit pleasure inclusive so you know use the words ask people what words they use you know there's lots of great exercises on the pleasure project website a couple i've used are for example getting people to feel more comfortable talking by saying you know talk about a meal that you've just had that you loved like who cooked it for you why did you is it because somebody you love cooked it for you is it because it tasted so good is it because you were sitting by the quayside and what was it now think about describing a, a pleasurable experience a sexual pleasurable experience mm. you've had recently in the same way with the smells and the tastes and the associations and I mean I do it in workshops then I tend to stop people because they don't you know if they're doing it with somebody next and they don't know they might feel uncomfortable but that kind of opens us up to to that sort of you know if you feel scared to drop off that edge and actually talk in those ways and I guess I, I often use cooking as the analogy because, you know, if you're thinking about a recipe of what you want to cook or a meal you really want to cook, you know, the way that you'll be taught about that is you'll be given the book, the recipe, then you'll then you'll practice it and you might not get it right the first time, then you will get it right or and you'll taste it at different times and you'll adjust it. But when it comes to sex, nobody gives us a recipe or they don't show us or, you know, except if we're in a sexual situation, which isn't always the best time to start thinking about what you want, right? It can be. So I think of it like, think about it as if you're thinking about cooking, which is another sensual experience, which can be amazing, right? But it takes some practice. You need to try different recipes. So just, you know, bring it into the work that you do and in the conversations you have with your friends, with your community, with your partners. That's awesome. I love your advice. It's amazing. So we have only a few minutes. Are you down for a few wild card questions where they can get the good, they can get to know the real you? I'm a bit scared, but. Okay. You down? Okay. Why not? Okay. Can I, can I pass if I don't know the answer? Of course. Okay. What are you watching on Netflix or Crave or Hulu or whatever it is? Oh, my God. I haven't got anything currently going. I'm really sorry. I'm looking forward to the new um, edition of Sex Education. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. It's going to be. Okay. So I'm a bit like, I feel, I mean, well, partly because Gillian Anderson's stunning and so sexy, but (laughs) partly because I love the interiors and the views. Oh my God. And I think that maybe that's a sign of my middle age because I'm like, <laughs> wow, look at that polished wood furniture and look at that view. And like, you know, but they've got something for everyone in the in sex education. Look, it's so good. Okay, then since you since you didn't do that question, the next question is what's your karaoke song? Oh, I was just talking to my friend yesterday who I know when we both <laughs> lived in Bangkok and we were out yesterday. And um, Mike and um, we, we were laughing because he loved the karaoke there. And I said, I'm never singing karaoke. I was banned from the like school choir. They told me to act like I was eating a brick. And then I went into my first karaoke bar in Bangkok and he literally had to drag me out. And I was like arguing with the CD guy like, I mean, like, la, 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 la. I haven't been on yet. Um, I love just belting out punk classics like that oh, nice. or something or the clash, partly because my voice is so bad. So I hope that I get over how bad it is just by belting out a sort of thrashing British punk. <laughs> That's awesome. I used to love the clash. So the last question, and you've already given us so much wisdom, but is there any advice or quote or piece of wisdom that you have found helpful in your journey of life that you want to share with the listeners? Gosh, I'm thinking of a 
a pleasure one. I probably should think of like a, a more broad one. Is that okay? So, Whatever's on your mind. Just... Well, that was just the one that popped into my mind was when, when you're thinking about, say, for sex or condoms, just flip your mind and think about condoms as a sex toy. And like, mm. you know, when you're introducing it and th- in all different ways. So, for example, you know, you could be getting a condom out of your pocket and it could be a signal, right? Like a signal that that's the kind of sex you want now and like a green light right you're ready for a particular sort of sex you can talk dirty about it so you can you know roll on the condom very slowly you can put lube in the end you know I mean you know with the female condom the outer ring can rub on the clitoris so I think we've too long been kind of the people who have been responsible for condom promotion have worked not in that kind of branding like you're talking about or haven't thought creatively about how you can introduce them and just putting that in the part of your brain which is the sexy part of your brain and isn't the sort of safe or disease part of your brain can open up a whole range of new ways of thinking and it doesn't have to become the condom moment but it can be the condom moment I love that listeners you know you can learn so much from Annie and the Pleasure Project. I know I've just learned so much and I have been learning a lot for a while. I just want to say thank you so much. I love that you left us with this like exciting advice and you gave us so much to think about. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. That was great. I had a ball and a blast. So fun. And I can't wait to meet you in person. I've seen you talk. I saw you talk in Mexico and places. So next time there's an international gathering and you're there, well, grab a Yeah, whatever beverage. that might be, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I think that was the last international gathering I went to. Yeah, the one yeah, in Me too. Mexico. Yeah. 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 I don't know what they're going to look like in the future. There's going to be some kind of hybrid, I guess. You know, there's... I heard that there's some organizations that are sending, like are using robots at conferences, which sounds really exciting. So you basically, I know it's a bit of a gimmick, but you basically attend the conference, but they use an iPad and the robot moves between sessions. And then, you know, whatever Carmen's face would appear and you'll be on the panel, like from the iPad, but then, and then you'll go off and have a meeting and the robot will move and you'll arrange to meet somebody. I guess we'll all be doing that now. It's all been a bit fast forward. I don't know. I really want to still have in-person meetings. I don't know. I'm like old. Exactly. It's gonna, we've got to get to a point, haven't we? Like uh, some sort of sweet mix in the middle somehow. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, listeners, you'll be able to learn so much. So I hope you, you, you check out The Pleasure Project. Thanks again, Annie. Oh, thanks. No, that was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us again for more conversations with stigma experts from around the globe.